0: King of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, the vessels, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal house and of the nobility youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach and Azariah, he called Abednego.
1: Thanks, Rich. Handled the names pretty well. Let's, uh, let's begin our service, uh, or our, our time in the Word, with prayer. Uh, Lord, would you please hide your Word in our heart? Uh, Lord would you dig it deep in Uh, change our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh inscribe on them your desire and your will uh, and incline us to obey and to follow after you Uh, Lord make us to be your people and uh, Father we we lift up those who are um, still sick those who are still suffering uh, from uh, uh, COVID Father thank you for the the break that we've gotten here in LA County. We pray that you would continue that grace to us. Uh, Thank you that uh, the county can begin to open again. And Lord, that the death toll from the the, uh, pandemic was not as bad as it could have been. Uh, That is a sign of your grace and your mercy to people that we don't deserve. Uh, Father, we wanna pray for uh, Christopher Stringer and his family this morning. As his brother Michael has died and the family is dealing with the, the sudden loss uh, Lord, Michael has been wayward for a while, and, um, and now he's gone, and so we pray that you would uh, help the Stringer family to mourn uh, properly for him, to uh, regret his loss, and Lord, that you might extend mercy to them, that you would um, in some way use um, Michael's death for their good and for your glory, and uh, so Lord, we turn to your word now. We ask that you would show us what it is that we have this morning to understand and lord holy spirit make us to understand we pray in christ's name amen amen so we're in the book of daniel now uh, starting a new a new chapter uh one of the commentators i read the very first sentence in his commentary said daniel is one of the hardest books for preachers to preach <laughs> at which point i went what was i thinking um but i actually so far so good the first seven verses have not been that hard it's been pretty good Uh, What happened this week, though, is I was doing a lot of research, you know, when you start a new book, you have to do all the background and who wrote it and when it was written and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was tossing and turning around, how do I put all this together and, and then turn to the Word and make it interesting and integrated. And When I finally put the two together, I went, well, Daniel does it. I mean, it's, it's practically written like a sermon. So right out of the gate, I'm thinking, this isn't going to be hard. This should be pretty straightforward. So what we're going to do is we'll go through those first seven chapters and, and use it as an introduction to the book, because I think that's how Daniel wrote this. Um, the theme, though, of the whole book of Daniel, which we'll see as we go through, is that um, God is sovereign over the nations. Um, and, and it's just blatant over the pages, one after another of these stories that are in here. But for us, the way that it connects with us is, is it shows us that as God's people, we can live in a foreign culture without fear, because God is sovereign over those things. And that's what Daniel is going to demonstrate to us. So let's take a look, the very first verse. "In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now you can read the fuller story of that in Second Kings chapter 24, or Second Chronicles chapter 36. Um, but uh, what had happened was the northern tribes had been taken away, and then after a certain period of time, God said, now it's time for, for uh, Judah, and he sent Nebuchadnezzar in to take them away. And, and that's how the book begins. This is the beginning of Daniel's story. Um, this also raises a question about when was this book written? When was Daniel written? Uh, because there's some discrepancies that, that we come across. For example, when Jeremiah tells this, and in Jeremiah 25, he says, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the, the uh, son of uh, Josiah, Je- king of Judah. And then he goes on to tell of the siege. So did it happen in the third year or the fourth year? And so um, some scholars look at that and say, see, this, this means that Daniel wasn't really familiar with the story. He didn't know what was going on. Um, you see, there's an argument was Daniel written in the 6th century B.C. or in the 2nd century B.C.? So, in other words, was Daniel written before the events he described or after? Now, from the time that Daniel wrote this until the 3rd century A.D., nobody really argued about it. They said Daniel wrote it, he wrote it 6th century B.C., there's no argument, but there was a a 3rd century pagan named uh, Poffrey and he wrote this, he was going to destroy Christianity. He was, he was going to write this big exposition and explain how Christianity was a farce. And he was the first person to say, well, Daniel must have written it in the second century BC because prophets couldn't know what was going to happen. There was no way for him to know of all the kingdoms that he talked about. Um, Pophrey was dismantled and shut down. He went nowhere. We don't even have his writings. That's how out of it he, he was. And nobody came back and, and thought of it again until the 18th century enlightenment and in the 18th century enlightenment they said well there are no miracles and so Daniel couldn't have known and so Daniel must be a second century BC writer Um, and so now they they muster all these arguments the funny thing with their arguments is they could be used in both directions so this one they say well Jeremiah who was closer to the events said that it happened in the fourth year of Jehoiakim And he would know because he was much closer. So Daniel just got the date wrong because he was much further away in the second century. But when you stop and look at this, it actually, there's an argument here that flips that on its head and says, no, it makes more sense that Daniel was where he was in the sixth century BC. And here's why. Because in um, Babylon, they would not count the first year of the king when he ascended to the throne. That was not his first year. His first year would be the first year after his ascension. Whereas in Israel, when the king ascended to the throne, that was his first year. So for Daniel in Babylon, counting years the way Babylonians did, it was the third year. For Jeremiah in Israel, counting the, way the, the years the way that the Jews did, it was the fourth year. It's kind of like if you go to England, the first floor in England is not the ground floor. The first floor in England is what we would call the second floor. We call the first floor the first floor. And so you could have two people, an American and a Brit, talking, and they could both say, we met on the first floor of the building, and the Brit could say, we met on the second floor of the building, or the the other way around. (laughs) We met on the second floor, and the Brit says the first floor. And they could both be right, and they would be using different numbers. So that's one of the things that's happening here. So it appears more logical that Daniel was in Babylon thinking and talking like a Babylonian and counting years that way. So that's one of those things that kind of sets it on its head. The other thing that um, people say it must have been a later writing is the fact that chapters two through seven are in Aramaic. They're in a different language. So parts of the book are written in Hebrew, part is written in Aramaic, and then it ends back in Hebrew. And they say, see, that, that means that this was somebody who was well removed because by the second century the Jews were beginning to speak Aramaic. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, that was the language of the day. Um, rather than Hebrew. And so obviously, it must be that Daniel was second century. And again, you go, but that argument can be flipped on its head, too. If Daniel came from Israel, where he learned to speak Hebrew, he would, he would write in Hebrew. But what happens in chapter two is we get this proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar. And so the language switches to Aramaic. The Jews at the time would have understood both. Um, Daniel would have understood both. And so it's not really an argument for a later one. So we're going to go with the, the uh, assumption that the Jews and the, the church have had for a very long time. Daniel was written 6th century BC. So when we get to the later part where he's predicting all of these kingdoms, it really is miraculous. And that's OK. So that's a good thing. So that's the book of Daniel kind of overview when it was written, what was going on. Um, the next section is really kind of discussing why did Daniel write this? What was going on there? And so um, verses two and two, two and two. Yeah, two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into into his hands, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So put yourself in the, the place of a Jew at that time. The Jews had their homeland, the promised land, the land that that Yahweh had given them. He delivered them from Egypt, and he led them through the Red Sea, and he led them through the wilderness, and Joshua conquered this land, and they moved in, and they took this land, and and David made provisions for a temple, and Solomon built this big, glorious temple, and then David's dynasty continued on. There's this sense of pride, this connection. This is our land, and then suddenly Nebuchadnezzar shows up and he besieges the temple, he, he takes down Jerusalem, he storms through it like there's nothing in his way. And to make matters worse, he takes out of the temple these objects that were used for worship. And he doesn't just take them out and melt them down, he takes them and he puts them in the house of his God. So for a Jew, this is a huge insult. This is a great insult that, they would, that Gentiles would transgress the courts of the temple and that they would take these objects and, and haul them off to this temple of another god. Now, it could have been worse. Judaism is weird. It's, it's odd in, in all of the Middle East. They didn't have a god in the temple. In all the other temples, there was an idol. There was an icon sitting there, and that was the god. And so Nebuchadnezzar would go in, and he would take their god and march him off and put him in the temple of his god. and say, see, we won. Well, he gets to Jerusalem, and there's no god in there. <laughs> you Jews are weird. What are you worshiping? And so he took what he could and he hauled it off. So for the Jews at the time, now they have been carried out of their land. They have been taken away from this land that God promised them, that that he promised to Abraham, "Your, your descendants will inherit this. This will be theirs. And now they're carried away from it. So the question could be, when you look at this, you could think, did God lose? Did Yahweh lose? Why is it going like this? Now we know because we're looking through uh, biblical theology, we understand what was going on, but be a Jew in that time period, it would be a huge challenge. You would be thinking, "What went wrong? Have have I backed the wrong person? And, and and have I or the wrong God? Have I gone with the wrong God here?" Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't seem to have any problems coming in and taking over. And so, what Daniel's writing to them for is he's writing to assure them that no, Yahweh's still in charge. Th- this is not outside of his control, and and the point is, who's in charge really is important, isn't it? The 2020 election, no matter which side you were on, both sides said, this is make or break. This is the election. Why was it such a big deal? Because both sides felt the man that got into the White House was gonna make the decisions and the direction of the country. It was that big of a deal. So no matter which, which person won, the person, the side that lost, those people might be thinking, well, did we make a mistake? Or as, as the election is coming in, as a matter of fact, because it was so tight, because it was so close, people could begin to wonder, did we back the right guy? Was Biden really the guy that could take down Trump? Maybe we should have gone with somebody else. Was Trump the right guy? Maybe he's, he's not fit for office, or maybe he's not gonna win, or maybe he's too alienating, and maybe I put my, 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 uh, um, my campaign trust in the wrong person. Why? Because who's in charge is really super important. And so that's the picture we're getting here is the Jews are looking and saying, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Yahweh. Maybe we were on the wrong side here. Maybe Yahweh wasn't the guy we should have backed. Maybe we should have gone with, um, with the northern tribes and backed. some, no, they didn't do too well either. So um, when we look at these things, we have to remember who's in charge is, is really important. It, it really matters. And so for us today, when we're looking at the situation that we find ourselves in, there may be a temptation to wonder, are we doing the right thing? Is is the right thing going on? April 2nd in the LA Times, there was an op-ed by a uh, professor named uh, Phil Zuckerman. He uh, is a professor who specializes in the sociology of secularism. And so here's, here's what he said. He said, for the first time since Gallup began tracking the numbers in 1937, Americans who are members of church, synagogue, or mosque are not in the minority or majority. According to the Gallup report released this week, compare today's 47% to 1945 where more than 75% of Americans belong to a religious congregation. Since they began tracking numbers in 1937, the percent of people who went to church, synagogue, or mosque fluctuated somewhere between 60 and 75%. That was, that was pretty much the band. Around 2000, that number starts going down to today when we find out that those who go to church, mosque, or synagogue are in the minority. So what Zuckerman is saying is it can be scary because there's a big change going on, but secularists are nice people. You don't have to worry about the secularism. It's it's not a bad thing. Um, Secular societies tend to be more generous. They tend to give more in uh, social benefits to people. Uh, Those kinds of things. Oh, sure, there was the Soviet Union and, and, you know, uh, Cambodia and that kind of stuff. But, you know, you don't have to worry about those because what happened with those is there was a violent revolution where they tried to enforce secularism on a society. When he called, what he called um, organic secularism, when it kind of rises up amongst the people, it's much nicer. It's a friendlier form of secularism. So you don't have to be afraid because secularism can include religious tolerance. So don't be afraid, you guys. When we look at it though, we're looking at this and going, wait a minute, the the church is shrinking. People are not going to church as much. People are not interested in religion. People are registering as nuns more, no religious preference. And does that mean that we're losing ground? Are, Are we failing here? What's happening? Well, what the message of the book of Daniel is a reassurance that even in our situation today, God remains still in control. And so we don't have to fear secularism, not because they promise not to hurt us, but because God is in control. God is the one who's going to lead this. And, and so that's Daniel's point when he talks about uh, Nebuchadnezzar dragging this stuff off and making it look like he defeated Yahweh. As we go through the rest of the story, he's going to learn the hard way he did not. And so as we are entering into this new season for America, where it is an increasingly secular society, we need to come with that same attitude that it looks like Jesus lost, like his church has shrunk, but that's not the case. He's still in charge, he's still in control. Jesus said he would build his church and he will. That's why Daniel is really important to us. And this last portion I think is the most relevant for us. This is really important as we're facing this this sea change in our culture, beginning to discuss the captivity as, as the Israelites have been carried away, What Daniel is going to show us is how to live in a foreign culture without fear. And and this first part can sound a little bit scary. Listen to what happens. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. In other words, here's Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Not only did he storm Jerusalem, not only did he sack the temple, He carried people away from Jerusalem, from Israel, carried them off to a foreign land, and his plan now is dominion through assimilation. Do you see who he grabbed? He said, take the people, the the royalty and the nobility, in other words, the people of stature among this nation, and those who are good-looking. See, we're not the only ones who fall for that. If somebody's good-looking, they must be right, right? Now, that's, that's, that's an old myth that has been around for a very long time, and so that's what he says, Somebody, those who are good looking, I don't want any ugly, ugly people in my court, and they need to be skillful in wisdom, and on and on and on. Um, the NIV translate that as showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And his plan is, he's gonna take these cream of the crop people, bring them in and educate them at Pagan State University for three years. They will be indoctrinated not just to learn our language, but our culture, our customs. They will learn how to be Babylonians. And then when they graduate, we're going to draw them into positions of authority and power throughout the kingdom. And so his plan here is he's going to exercise this authority over them to bring them in and make them more comfortable with Babylonian culture and style than with their own. So that's the plan. That, that's how they're gonna do this. This is where he's gonna take them. Does it sound familiar? That, that's what is happening today. This is the, the, the movement of secularism does the same thing. You can believe whatever you want, just don't say it out loud. You, you can worship however you want, but you can't do that in public. You, you can have whatever personal morality you want, but it may not conflict with ours. And so the idea is you don't talk about it, you keep quiet and you begin to assimilate. You'll begin to fit into our culture that we have determined we're gonna have. And so when we define sin and it's at odds with how our culture defines sin, we're the bad guy. We're the ones who are wrong. We're being hateful. When they define sin and it means you can't talk about religion or you're you're mean if you talk about religion, they're trying to force us into that same mold. And so that's the approach that we're facing today. Now, we have an added disadvantage in this. Daniel was yanked out of Israel, hauled off to a foreign land, and then thrown into a foreign culture, something that he had never grown up with. And so it was maybe easier for him to recognize some of the stark differences. For us, it's that old story about you put a, how do you boil a frog? You put it in the water and slowly increase the temperature. And eventually the frog boils to death and doesn't even know it. How do we get assimilated? How do we drift into cultural norms that are around us as they slowly turn up the heat? And we don't ever notice it. It just shows up. We, we compromise on this and we compromise on that. And we, we're silent about this or that. So what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are gonna show us throughout this book is how to be God's people in a climate of other gods, in a culture that, that values other gods. And so the first little portion here is they're going to show us how to comply. In other words, there's a couple of different approaches that Christians have to culture, and one of them is fight it. We're going to isolate ourselves, we're going to create our own subculture, and we are not going to have anything to do with it. That is not what Daniel, it wasn't an option for Daniel and them. Um, They would have gotten executed if the king said come, and they went, no, poof, off with their heads, next. So that just wasn't an option. Um, But they are going into this culture and they're saying, where can we comply? How can we fit in and where we must we draw the line? Now, next week we'll see where they draw a line and they say, we, we can't go here. This is asking too much, but we will do all this other stuff. And so the, the task for them is, is to learn the language and the, the culture of the, the Chaldeans, is to, to really imbibe in that, but that in itself is not compromise. That, that's not necessarily giving up. If you're familiar with this culture, remember Paul quoted pagan philosophers and poets just off the top of his head. Your own poets have said Cretans are, are beasts and slothful or whatever and liars or something like that. He was quoting their own prophets to them. So that's not necessarily a sign of, of um, compromise. And the same thing for us, being versed in movies and television and books and movie, uh, music of our times is not necessarily compromise. It's, it's not a sign that you have given up. It helps us instead to speak to the culture around us. It's kind of like if we went to a foreign nation and we had to learn their style of writing, which was all pictographs. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a form of idolatry. In our culture, the way people speak largely is entertainment. That, that's kind of the lingua franca for our, our culture, is, is their entertainment culture. So uh, I think I've told you before, when I was at, in seminary, I was working really hard. I didn't have time for much of anything. As i drawing close to the end of my career, or my, uh, my uh, degree, um, I was listening to some of the guys at work, and they were talking about the football game. And I remember just rolling my eyes and thinking, man, they got their own stupid religion, man. They treat sports like it's just the greatest thing in the world. And then I went... Well, how am I going to talk to these folks? I don't have anything in common with them. But I can put on the football game this weekend, and then I can talk about football. And so that was just a way to connect with them. It, I wasn't going to worship football, but I could at least say, hey, did you guys see what happened this weekend? When are the Bears going to get it together? And bam, now we can start talking. So that's, that's the idea of that's not a compromise. That, that's not stepping over a line necessarily. Now. There is an impulse within the church to resist that kind of thing, to to push back against it. And um, there was a a newsletter from David French uh, that arrived this morning. And when I saw the title, I went, oh, I bet there's going to be a sermon illustration in here. And yes, there was. Uh, David French is is talking about Christians and non-Christian culture and how do they fit together. And here's one of the things that he said I thought was really helpful. He said. If you believe the most dangerous threats come from without, that is from outside of us, if, if you, we are in this culture and this culture is an attack on us, if you, fee, if you believe the most dangerous threats come from without, fear can rise in your heart. As you lose political and cultural power and you see others shape the environment in which you live, then you start to, genu- then you start to have genuine alarm that other people are destroying the souls of those you love. What a terrifying idea. Terrifying, but ultimately false. So when we're in this foreign culture, when when the culture of America continues to drift away from its Christian roots, when it becomes more and more antithetical to what we believe, we can think that culture is somehow a threat to us. But what French tells us is that's not where the problem lies. That's only part of it. There was a reason that Jesus was confident to leave us in this world after he saved us, even though this world would be hostile to us. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus is telling the church, this is, is, is toward the end of, his, of, of the Gospel of John, when he's praying, and he's telling the church, I'm leaving you here, and this is what it's going to be like. The world is going to hate you. The world is gonna hate you because it hated me. It's gonna persecute you because it persecuted me. So Jesus was not afraid to leave us here, that the culture somehow would seep in and influence us and and corrupt us and lead us astray. He said, no, this this is what you should expect. So he knew where the threat, where the real threat for human beings lies. And it's not our culture around us. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter seven. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceitful, uh, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evils come from within, and they defile a person. So here's the bad news. You're already messed up. It's not the culture that's going to seep in and make you a bad person. It's already there. It's what comes out of you. So as Christians, we stand here and we go, Jesus knew what he was doing. He left us here. He said, you will be in this world. The world's going to hate you. By the way, he also said, and you're the biggest problem. In the early 1900s, there was a, a, pap- a thing in a, one of the British papers that said, what do you think is the greatest problem in the world today? G.K. Chesterton, the genius, wrote, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He, he knew that the biggest problem in the world is us. It's not, it's not something else. It's not some external thing. So French continues. He goes on. He says, none of this is an argument that environments are irrelevant. You don't tell recovering alcoholics that it's fine to stock their liquor cabinets. Pornography frequently connects with a person's fallen nature in particularly pernicious way. No man is an internal island, but a person should tend their souls and shepherds tend the flock with far greater effort than to make them protect themselves from the world around them, with far greater effort than they make to protect themselves from the world around them. They must realize that the law, whether it's imposed by parent or president, cannot render uh, us righteous. Indeed, if we spend more time attempting to reshape our our environment in hopes that it will protect our souls, then uh, then we should spend humbling asking God to shape our heart, then our priorities are exactly wrong. If the church laments the waywardness of the culture more than it laments the misconduct of the church, then its priorities are exactly wrong. It's easy to point outside and go, look at this horrible culture. Look at how bad this is when we have one pastor after another after another fall because of sexual sin. It's easy to say, look at how horrible those Democrats are when one of our greatest apologists after his death is discovered to have been a horrible, horrible sexual fiend. It's easy to look outside and say, that's what's doing it. That's what's corrupting us. The internet has this this terrible effect on us. Instead of saying, I'm the problem. I need to watch my own heart. So as Christians, as we live in this world, this fallen world, this culture that's now pushing further and further against us, we, we don't have to live in fear. Jesus has done something for us. He has redeemed us. He has given us a new heart and he's conforming us to his image, and that's our hope. Not that we can get the world right by external means. So what we'll see next week, like I said, is is Daniel and his friends are gonna show us a line they will not cross. There's a place that they won't go because they're willing to tend their own hearts more than they're trying to tend Babylonian culture. They're not there in Babylon saying, oh, you know what, we can make Babylon into the next great Israel. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll get the right people in the right offices. They're not, they're more concerned about their own hearts and saying, now how do we behave uprightly in this broken culture? And so that's what they're gonna experience, and that's what the church is gonna experience today. We need this message of Daniel more today than we did 20 years ago, and we'll need it more today, more tomorrow than we do today. So, and, and I just wanna cover one last kind of overview thing The structure of Daniel is gonna show us why this is so. It's gonna show us this picture of how God is is ruling the nations, and we benefit from that. We're protected by that. So the the reason that Daniel is fairly easy to preach is because the chapter breaks are pretty much stories. So chapter one is, is Daniel's placement in the kingdom. It's kind of his calling into the kingdom. But then two through 12, chapter two is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he builds, he sees this big statue Um, Chapter 3 is the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown in. Chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. He turns into an animal for a period of time. Uh, Chapter 5 is Belshazzar, the new king, has a feast and and gets a little too proud, and a hand writes on the wall. Chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. Anybody not know that one? (laughs) Everybody knows Daniel in the lion's den. Chapter 7 is Daniel has a dream of four beasts. And then chapters 8 through 12 are these apocalyptic visions of the future. So why does that structure help us? Well, listen to how these these things fit together. Chapter 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. They're written in a separate language. That sets them off in the the mind of the the Jewish reader. It sets them off as a unit. There's something different. I had to shift gears when I get here. So listen to how these chapters fit together. Chapter 2. The statue that, that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about, it represents four kingdoms. And in the end, a rock that no man has touched, no hand has carved, comes and strikes that statue and breaks it to pieces. Chapter 7, there are four animals representing those same four kingdoms that were in the, 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 um, the statue. And one comes who is like the Son of Man coming in glory, and he destroys it. The future belongs to God. Chapters 3 and 6, chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow when the music is played. They refuse to bow to the golden idol that, that Nebuchadnezzar has built, and so they are picked up, and they are thrown into a fiery furnace, and yet they're delivered. Chapter 6, Daniel will not stop praying. He, he opens his shutters, he faces Jerusalem, and he prays. And so he is picked up, and he is thrown into the lion's den, and yet He survives. That's because God is sovereign over present rulers and will deliver his people. He will do it. Now chapters four and five, the center of this this kind of pyramid shape, chapters four and five, there's a phrase that's repeated four times in these two chapters. And tell me if this doesn't tell you what this is about. The most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So that's the, the theme of chapter four and five. Nebuchadnezzar becomes proud. Look at the great Babylon that I have built. And God humbles him, turns him into an animal for a period of time. And then, then Nebuchadnezzar repents and he's restored. Belshazzar has a big party, pulls out all the stuff that daddy brought from, uh, from Israel and parties. And a hand appears on the wall and says, mini, mi, mini, mini, um, I can't remember the words right now, writes it on the wall, but what it means is you have been measured and found wanting. And he doesn't get restored because he won't humble himself. Why? Because the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and will give them to anyone he wishes. And the message there is that. God is in charge of those nations. God raises them up and brings them down. So what about 8 through 12? Um, That's the freaky stuff. That's, you know, most pastors would go, well, we're just not gonna go there. I'm too stupid to do that, so we will go there. <laughs> but what's happening there is there's this, there's this explanation of history using apocalyptic literature, and it goes beyond the experience that Daniel's had in and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and is looking forward. And you see these terrifying kingdoms. That's that apocalyptic literature is supposed to be scary. You're not supposed to sit down and draw a panther with two heads and wings. The, the imagery is, it's, it's powerful, it's strong, it's ripping and tearing, it can move quickly. And that's, that's the imagery there. And so what we get in that is we get this picture of Alexander the Great sweeping across the land. We get this picture of Antioch Epiphanes coming through and desecrating the temple. And, and all of these things until we get back to that image of the stone that no man has touched. Until we get to, back to that image of the Son of Man coming in the clouds and then that kingdom is broken. So what the message of that is, is is it's going to be difficult for God's people. It's just going to be tough until the Son of Man comes. And once the Son of Man comes, there's a new kingdom and and a new way of doing things. So that is what Daniel's point is. That's, That's what Daniel's showing his people, the Jews at the time, and as we, as the church, look back, we can put names to those creatures. We know the kingdoms that he's talking about. We can look at the history and say, yeah, they were horrible. And so when we look and we see American culture drifting further and further away from Christianity, do we have to be afraid of that? Look at what God did to the Jews throughout all of that history, through all of these raging empires coming and going. Is, is one more law going to undo the church? Jesus said he would build it. That, that's the fact. That's the truth. So you have nothing to fear from these kingdoms. The worst they can do for, to you is deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, drag you before kings and governors. That's the worst they can do to you. Jesus is sovereign over these kingdoms. So when Daniel says the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of man and gives them to anyone whom he wishes, that's Daniel's version of it. Do you know what, what it sounds like when we say that same thing? Jesus is Lord. That, that's our version of that same thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus is Lord back then, and it will hopefully point us to the future and comfort us as we go into this strange new world. And it, it'll keep us from falling prey to the, the, the threat of this external danger and to know there are places where we're gonna agree and we're gonna disagree. There's places where we're gonna be right and wrong and and we're just gonna have to stick to what the truth is. One little caveat I'd like to say, a lot of times I hear people talk about this drift and say well it's all the left and isn't the left horrible and as we drift and become more liberal it's just rotten. Well let me warn you there are equal dangers on the right as well. White supremacists are really mad about liberals and are horrible people too. So we, we face dangers on both sides. And, and what's unfortunate is when we talk about drifting and becoming more liberal, what we actually mean in historical terms is we become less liberal. Liberal in, in a lowercase l, in, in, a, in a liberal sense, is what American democracy is. That's what it was founded on is called classic liberalism. That is, people should be free and the government should be restricted and not be able to trounce into people's lives. So when liberals say that we want to institute this law and that law and we're going to do more of this control and that control, they're actually being illiberal. So make sure you don't fear the wrong things. It's not just somebody with a D after their name on the ballot. There are people on the R side that are just equally as terrible. There was a caucus they tried to form in Congress recently. And it said, America is an Anglo-Saxon nation. And as we bring in more immigrants, it's going to water down our identity. Folks, that's racism. This is blatant racism. American is not an Anglo-Saxon nation. As Lisa pointed out when I mentioned that to her, well, yeah, until the Louisiana Purchase when all of a sudden there's all these Mexicans and Spaniards. (laughs) It's, It's not like that. So make sure you're aware of who the enemy is. It's not out there, it's us. And the enemy out there isn't just on the left. It's also on the right as well. So that's what Daniel is going to prepare us for. That's how Daniel is going to get us ready. And, and I think as we go through it, we'll see that the story is actually beautiful embracing, and bracing and very applicable for us. With that, let me close us in prayer. Lord, you are blatantly, scorchingly honest with us. Lord, it is our heart that is the problem. It is not that political party, it is not that elected leader, it is not that policy decision that is gonna ruin the church. Lord, it is the wickedness in our own hearts. And so, Father, I, I think David French was exactly right. Would you lead us to shepherd our hearts? Would you lead the church to shepherd the people that we might be aware of our own weakness and our own fault? and Lord, recognize where the battle lines are and are not, and Lord, help us to be faithful in light of the, the change that this nation is going through. Um, we can lament it. We can, we can weep that it's not the America we grew up in, but at the same time, Lord, it is the America that you have placed us in at this time, and Lord, you said you would build your church, and your commission to your church is go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teach them to obey. And Lord, the great promise, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So Lord, as we, as we continue to inch into this strange new world, we trust that you're with us still. Would you show us the right way? Keep your people safe in your arms. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.